Welcome. I'm Father Mitch Packle, and welcome to Scripture and Tradition, where we take a look at the sacred scripture through the lens of our tradition, the apostolic tradition. Matter of fact, today it's interesting that the first reading at Mass was 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and that includes verse 15, which says, Hold on to the traditions that I left you, whether by word or by letter. Uh, as part of staying faithful to Christ in that passage, to be able to hold on to the traditions. So the theme for this show in many ways is connected directly to that verse. Now, we'd love to have you be part of the show by adding your questions and comments. During the live broadcast, which is on Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, you can call in. If you're in North America, it's 1-800-221-9460. 1-800-221-9460. If you are outside North America, it, that won't work, so you have to call country code 1, area code 205-271-2970. One two zero five two seven one two nine eight zero. You can also send us your questions and comments by email by writing to Scripture and Tradition at ewtn.com, or follow us and participate with the show on Facebook and YouTube. Today, we will wrap up our look at Jesus cleansing of the leper in Mark's Gospel, chapter one. We'll talk about why Jesus ordered the leper to be quiet about his healing. We'll also examine the ritual laws for the cleansing of lepers. And if you have your Bible with you, you can look at Leviticus 14. <coughs> when we get to that and see how our Lord Jesus takes the place of those ritual sacrifices by his healing word. Now, we are going through a book that I wrote called Praying the Gospels, Jesus, Miracles in Galilee. It is available at EWTNRC.com, where it is item number 52885, 52885. So let's take a look at the next verse, which is Mark chapter 1, verse 44. Say nothing and obey the law. Jesus said to the leper, after sternly warning him, he sent him away at once, saying, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded as a testimony to them. So this is something that strikes a lot of people as rather odd, that our Lord orders the man to keep quiet about the miracle. This is very much similar to the command our Lord had given to the demon in the synagogue. Remember the man was in the synagogue was possessed by a demon who was crying out, I know who you are, 
you're the Son of God. And just as Jesus silenced the demon, he also silences the man about this. Now, when he silenced that demon, he also did it to other demons. And he silenced them because they knew who he was. They knew his identity as the Son of God. And it's not silencing them because it was false to call him the Son of God. That's not why. But he didn't want the demons to be the ones who reveal his identity. It has to be done in another way. But there are many times throughout the Gospels where our Lord tells people not to say anything about healings, not only about uh, the uh, exorcism of demons, but also when it comes to healing. And he doesn't want the disciples to reveal who he is when they hear the Father speak on the Mount of Transfiguration or when Peter gives his confession that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus recognized that that is from God the Father. So it's true. God the Father told him to say that and inspired that insight and knowledge. But our Lord still ordered him and the other disciples to stay quiet about his identity. This is repeated. So what is the reason our Lord keeps this all so quiet? I didn't come up with this insight. It was actually a scholar uh, named Wilhelm Vrede in his book on uh, the redaction, uh, the uh, editing process of the Gospel of Mark. He had, a, I think it was a brilliant insight though. Look at Mark chapter 15, verse 39. It says there, now, when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was God's son. Was, so that, that's what it says in the, the text, the son of God, or God's son. Now, this is important because it is the only time in the whole gospel that somebody announces that Jesus is God and then is not silenced. Every other time that somebody recognizes Jesus' divinity, they're silenced. The one time they are not silenced is here in Mark 15, verse 39 when the centurion says it as he watches Jesus die. And the insight from Wilhelm Vrede is very important. This is a way for St. Mark to show us that while the 
healings and the exorcisms and even the transfiguration show that Christ's divinity is shining through. You still cannot really understand the meaning of God becoming flesh, of God becoming man, unless you also understand and make it as the key to understanding that God made man had to die on the cross. That his death on the cross is actually more important than the exorcisms and healings. So the exorcisms and healings point to Christ's divinity. But he did not come primarily to heal and exercise. He came primarily to redeem the human race from sin and to restore us to eternal life. So as to take us from sin, and that's why he dies, but he restores us to life and restores us to being the image and likeness of God through his resurrection, which also does not happen unless he dies. His death is where you can see this very important thing, this very important element of Jesus' divinity. And that's when you can make that as an act of faith. You can have this act of faith in Jesus' divinity because we needed God to become flesh in order to die for fallen humanity. And this is a very key uh, element. Now, we'll see this many other times. I want to introduce it to you now so that as we go through other miracles, when our Lord Jesus silences the people and the disciples and the demons, that we can understand is because, yeah, that was good, but the crucial element is not here yet. And crucial is a good word. Remember, the word crucial comes from the Latin word crux, meaning cross. And this is truly the crucial component. Now, this is something very important for us. Um, that uh, considers we read throughout the gospel, but we'll come back now to the focus in this passage. First, we see that the miracles give very, uh, excuse me, that, that Jesus instructed the leper at that point to go and show himself to the priest and prove to the priest through obeying the rituals that he is now cleansed from his leprosy and that he has to offer the proper sacrifices. Now, this refers to Leviticus chapter 14, that the Lord, um, you know, speaks of this uh, as something to do because he does not break the law. And he wants this man to obey the law in his fullness. There is 
a ritual of recognizing the cleansing of a leper. It took eight days and was a fairly detailed ritual. Um, first, the leper had to go to a priest and show him that the leprosy was gone. Um, and we, we see there that the Lord spoke to Moses saying, this shall be the ritual for the leprous person at the time of his cleansing. He shall be brought to the priest. The priest shall go out of the camp and the priest shall make an examination. If the disease is healed in the leprous person, the priest shall command that two living clean birds and cedar wood and crimson yarn and hyssop be brought for the one who is to be cleansed. The priest shall command that one of the birds be slaughtered over fresh water in an earthen vessel. That is a clay pot, not a one made out of stone, but a clay pot. And he shall take the living bird with the cedar wood and the crimson yarn and the hyssop and dip them and the living bird in the blood of the bird that was slaughtered over the fresh water. And he shall sprinkle it seven times upon the one who is to be cleansed of the leprous disease. Then the next part of the ceremony is that he shall pronounce him clean and he shall let the living bird go into the open field. So he gets to fly away. The one is to, who is to be cleansed shall wash his clothes and shave off all of his hair. So his body, not only the hair on his head, but all of his body hair. And bathe himself in water, and he shall be clean. After that, he shall come into the camp, but shall live outside his tent for seven days. So it has to be out in the open. On the seventh day, he shall shave all his hair, head, beard, eyebrows, and he shall shave all of his hair. Then he shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water and shall be clean. On the eighth day he shall take two male lambs without blemish and one ewe lamb. So two males and one female. A ewe lamb, of course, is a female. In his first year without blemish. A grain offering of three-tenths of an ephah of choice flour mixed with oil and one log of oil. So this is the ceremony that happens at the beginning. And then, after he does all that, we see in Leviticus 14, verse 11, the priest who cleanses shall set the person to be cleansed along with these things before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. The priest shall take one of the lambs and offer it as a guilt offering along with a log of oil and raise them as an elevation offering before the Lord shall slaughter the lamb in the place where the sin offering and the burnt offering are slaughtered in the holy place. For the guilt offering, like the sin offering, belongs to the priest. It is most holy. The priest shall take some of the blood of the guilt offering from the lamb and put it on the lobe of the right ear of the man, to be, the one to be cleansed, and on the thumb of the right hand and on the big toe of the right so that's another part of the ceremony. And then after doing that, 
the, um, we see in verse 15, the priest shall take some of the log of oil poured in the palm of his own left hand and dip his right finger in the oil that, in the, that is in his left hand and sprinkle some oil with his finger seven times before the Lord. Some of the oil that remains in his hand, the priest shall put on the lobe of the right ear, the one to be cleansed, and on the thumb of the right hand, and on the big toe of the right foot, on top of the blood of the guilt offering. The rest of the oil that is in the priest's hand, he shall put on the head of the one to be cleansed. So just take and wipe it on his bald head. Remember, he's all bald. So he just puts it right on there. Then the priest shall make atonement on his behalf before the Lord. The priest shall offer the sin offering to make atonement for the one to be cleansed from his uncleanness. Now, why would he do that? You know, his sin. It's not that they're saying that he got leprosy necessarily because of sin, but rather when he had leprosy, he was not allowed to come to the temple to offer any sacrifices. So this is making up for all the previous ones that he had missed. Afterward, he shall slaughter the burnt offering, which is a sacrifice that he burns entire. And the priest shall offer the burnt offering and the grain offering on the altar. Thus, the priest shall make atonement on his behalf, and he shall be clean. So it wouldn't be simply a medical case, um, you know, that the, it, you would have uh, you know, evidence, medically speaking, for cleansing. There's also that other element that we talked about with leprosy, namely, that you have this uh, need for cleansing that allows you to worship again. Lepers were not allowed into the temple because some of the dead skin should, could fall off. And there's nothing to do with death in the worship of the Lord. You know, so you don't, you don't you do anything of human death. You offer the sacrifices, but you don't bring death into the sacrifice. Worshiping death was not... A good thing, and we even see how in various places in Scripture, death is called God's enemy. We took a look at that last time. So this is a very important ritual because after this, not only is he declared clean, but now the leper is able to re-enter into worshiping the Lord in the temple with the whole community of Israel. And Jesus, our Lord, commands that he do that. All right. That gives you a little idea of what the man had to do in obedience to Jesus and Moses. We're going to take a break and come back in just a couple minutes, so please stay with us.
Welcome back. We just talked about the very um, uh, intricate ritual for the cleansing of a leper in Leviticus 14. And I would just mention briefly that in Leviticus 14, verses 21 to 32, we see that in the case of a poor person who is a leper, that instead of uh, the three lambs, they can bring one lamb and a couple of turtle doves. So that's a little bit simpler. Um, uh, and and the, the Bible is well aware, and you see in verse 21, if he is poor and cannot afford so much, he shall take one male lamb for the guilt offering to be elevated to make atonement on his behalf, one-tenth of an ephah of flying, fine flour and so on, and uh, a couple turtle doves or a couple pigeons um, as a sin offering, such as he can afford. So they, they knew how to make adaptation for those who were poor. And then it was basically the same ceremony, but just with, you know, smaller sacrifices that the man could afford to the best of his ability. So they make that distinction. Now, something I do want to mention. You know, we Christians don't offer those sacrifices. And in fact, Jewish people don't offer them anymore either. But it's for two different reasons. In Judaism, they cannot offer the sacrifices unless it's offered at the temple in Jerusalem. And there is no temple in Jerusalem. So, in, in fact, the uh, temple area is now the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Uh, Al-Aqsa means the most distant uh, mosque. And Muhammad uh, called it that uh, because it's where David and Solomon worshipped and Jesus. So it was, more, it was most dif distant from Mecca. That's why they call it. So the three holiest mosques are Mecca, Medina, which is not that far away from Mecca. It's in Saudi Arabia, and then Jerusalem. And uh, from the time of the uh, Muslim conquest of Jerusalem, um, they, they set that apart and in the late 7th, early 8th centuries built what we now call the Al-Aqsa Mosque, the Dome of the Rock. Very beautiful, very beautiful place. Now, this um, is something very important um, that we uh, uh, Jews don't offer sacrifice because they may not except at the temple, which doesn't exist. We don't do it because of another reason, that we believe that Jesus instituted a new covenant. He said that at the Last Supper. He said, this is the, couple, the chalice of my blood, the blood of the new and eternal covenant. So this new covenant is an eternal covenant, and we don't offer lambs as sacrifices because Jesus, our Lord, is the lamb. Um, this is exactly what St. John had said in John chapter 1, Behold the Lamb of God, behold him who takes away the sins of the world. And we see in Revelation 
for instance, chapter 7, verse 14, that the saints have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So Christ's blood cleanses us, not the blood of a bird that was, whose blood was flowed into some fresh water. And in Revelation chapter 1, uh, verse 5, Jesus loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood. This is very important. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 14 and 15, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, Purify our conscience from dead works to worship the living God. For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance because a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions under the first covenant. So instead of a lamb, being offered as under the old covenant, Christ is the lamb of this new covenant and cleanses us from sin. We also see in Hebrews 13, verse 12, therefore Jesus also suffered outside the city gate in order to sanctify the people by his own blood. The way the uh, lamb the, 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 that was killed, the scapegoat lamb was killed, um, on Yom Kippur. We also see St. Peter wrote in his first epistle, chapter 1, verse 2, that chosen and destined by God the Father and sanctified by the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and to be sprinkled with his blood. You can see why he uses that phrase. He was familiar with this liturgy of cleansing a leper. Now it's the blood of Christ that is sprinkled upon us. And in 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. This is something that is mentioned again and again and again. That Jesus' blood replaces the blood of lambs and, and birds and other animals. And this occurs in baptism. Look at what it says in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 11. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. That this washing refers to baptism. And notice how it says you were washed and then you were sanctified. Some people try to say that you were justified and then later on sanctified. But the Bible just puts that together. Here you were washed, then you were sanctified, then you were justified. And it's something that happens in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, not with birds and lambs. And also in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 26 to 27, it says, In order to make the church holy by cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. Again, referring to baptism. And the word is, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So God's word and the water of baptism. 
so as to present the church to himself in splendor without a spot or wrinkle or anything of the kind, so that she may be holy and without blemish. This is very much parallel to the cleansing that was done of the leper who took a bath. Remember, we read before in Leviticus 14, verse 8, the one is to be cleansed shall wash his clothes and shave off all his hair and bathe himself in water, and he shall be clean. And after that, he shall come into the camp, but shall live outside his tent for seven days. Now, in the early church, they would oftentimes baptize people without any clothes on and then put a new white garment upon them. They didn't shave them, their, their bodies of hair, but um, it definitely was meant to be a parallel to the cleansing of a leprosy because the, the cleansing of leprosy is a symbol also of cleansing us of sin. And that's a very, very important element. So this is another part, but let's conclude this whole episode with the leper. We'll take a look at Mark. We'll go back to Mark chapter 1, verse 45. But the leper went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the word so that Jesus could no longer go into a town openly but stayed out in the country, and people came to him from every quarter. Now, this is important because it shows that the leper disobeyed Christ's stern command. It's ordered him very strictly to do this. And the leper who is now healed, is all cleansed of leprosy by Christ's word. It shows that uh, he is so centered, so focused on his experience of being healed that he goes around telling everybody, instead of focusing on our Lord Jesus and what Jesus had instructed him to do, he was focused on his experience of being cleansed. This disobedience, said, well, some people say, well, hey, look, he's doing a service to Christ because he's making it known. No, actually, his disobedience interfered with Jesus' mission. It's a, it caused an interference because people were coming to him and he couldn't go and preach in the towns, which he had set out to do. He wanted to go and preach in the towns. And so it made it more difficult for Christ. And this is something to keep in mind. Often we say, well, my, my disobedience won't matter that much. It's just a small thing. But you don't know all the effects of your disobedience. It's better for us to simply obey Christ's commandments and take them as divinely given, which they are. Now, at the same time, this obstacle to entering the towns didn't put a stop to our Lord's mission to preach. It just made it more difficult. And the difficulty was that people had to get out of the towns in order to go to Jesus. 
instead of him coming to them in their towns. And uh, this is something that um, brings out how our disobedience, um, you know, is something that is very important and we don't always see the consequences, therefore we should obey all the more clearly. Okay, so we, we finished up that passage and let's take a look then at some of your questions. We'll start off with Doug, who is in Pennsylvania. Doug, what can we do for you? Uh, hello, Father Mitch. Thank you very much for taking my call. I, I greatly appreciate it. Yeah, uh, my wife and I make it a point to, to read the Bible uh, every day together. Mm-hmm. And we, we have a question specifically in reference to, to Psalm 91. But, but also which in, verse, do you know? Uh, wh- which verse? Uh-huh. Well, actually, the entire Psalm. Okay, the, well, it's a good which, Psalm. Yeah, which is about God's protection. And, you know, essentially, it's telling us that if we live in the shelter of Elion or, or God and make your home in the shadow of... Shaddai. And by the way, the way you say that is El Elyon. El, not Elion, but El Elyon. El Elyon. Okay. Yeah. Okay. See, you still have to learn a little more Hebrew. <laughs> I'm a boy from Philly. I, I, it's, I'm, well, I'm from <laughs> Chicago, so? <laughs> okay. Hard for me with that Hebrew. <laughs> me, it was hard for me, too, but we had to sit down in our chairs and study. But anyway, go ahead. You're right. <laughs> so, you know, in, in essence, what the psalm is telling us is that if we, uh, if we place our, our full trust in, in God and, and are, are loyal and faithful to God, that, in, in essence, no harm will come to us, mm-hmm. um, either by other people or life in, in general. And yet, when we, when we look around us, the world around us, we, we see that so many times uh, bad things are happening to, to good people, and including faithful Christians and, and faithful Catholics. So we, we, Don and I, uh, Don and my wife, would, would like to... You know, uh, get your thoughts on, on Psalm 91. Sure, sure. A couple things. Um, you're right that this is a psalm of trust. Uh, you see that in uh, verse 2, that, um, you know, it, it sets as a condition, the one who dwells in the shelter of the Most High, who abides in the shadow of the Almighty, will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. And then the series of promises of deliverance from the snare of the follower, the pestilence, um, and they'll protect us under, under his wings. Uh, won't fear the terror of the night or, or pestilence. If a thousand falls your side, it won't come near you. And um, this, this is something that, uh, as a matter of fact, it even says of ver- two verses that Satan quoted to our Lord, um, and that's, that's in verses 11 and 12. He will give his angels charge of you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Remember, that was the verse 
that Satan cited in or when he tempted Jesus to jump off the pinnacle of the temple. Remember that, Doug? Well, yeah, it's just there, I guess. So um, this is something that is very important. Our Lord did not take and use that verse. Say, okay, I'll show you. God will take care of me. I'll jump off of the temple. He didn't do that. And ultimately, he's, you know, we have to remember that our Lord was responding to this. You shall not tempt the Lord your God. While he is experiencing temptations from Satan, who was at that moment tempting God the Son. And furthermore, we see that our Lord was later on persecuted, prosecuted in a very illegal courts. Jewish law forbade holding court at night, but he was put on trial at night. And then he was condemned. And then when they brought him to Pilate, they changed the charges and had him condemned by Pilate. And then he was crucified. Now, this verse was understood by Satan to apply specifically to Jesus, our Lord. And yet, he suffered tremendous amounts. And yet, through all that suffering, our Lord came out of it in the resurrection. So, here's something that you know, all of us have to cope with when we pray for different situations and we ask God's protection. It may not be keeping us away from every single pain that occurs. I think back on uh, one man that I, I met and others that I learned about who had been in the communist gulag system in the old Soviet Union. One man talked to me about uh, what it was like, and uh, he was grateful for it. And some of the priests who were in the gulag used that as an opportunity to minister to the other Christians in the uh, gulag system. There's this concentration camp system that was far more extensive under communists than it was under the Nazis, who were socialists. And they learned that even while they were in the camps, they were able to do various kinds of ministry. They still suffered, and yet they saw that God was using them in those places so that the forces of evil did not preclude using that bad situation for greater good exactly as our Lord used his being put on trial and his being tormented and, and tortured with the scourging and the crown of thorns and then being crucified. He used that to redeem the world. That's how the Lamb of God died for us. And then was raised from the dead. And what we get forced 
to do as many Jewish people have done over the centuries, Jewish people of faith, and we too as people of faith, we begin to see even when we are suffering, as difficult as it is, something else comes out of it. And our Lord uses it not only for our good, but for the good for other people. And, you know, I think of St. Paul, who never would have been able to preach to King Agrippa II, his sister, Princess Bernice, the Roman procurator, various governors, and the emperor of Rome, unless he had been arrested. And that's what gave him the opportunity to stand in trial and witnessed about Jesus to these guys. So that, yeah, we do get put into difficult situations and suffering, but the Lord uses those to bring another kind of good and a greater good out of them. And that our faith helps us to see that there's something more to it. And that's, I think, this becomes the basis for a deepening of our faith and not a superficial faith. All right, we'll take uh, your questions and comments in a couple minutes. We just have to take a break. First thing, I want to invite you to join me tomorrow for EWTN Live, which is at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. We'll be talking about the concept of separation and of church and state, a concept that was introduced not in our Constitution, but by Supreme Court Justice, former Ku Klux Klan member and Masonic uh, believer, um, from right here in Alabama, uh, who had introduced that in the Supreme Court in 1947. And we'll talk with Professor Andrew Willard-Jones, who says that there is no such thing as secular or neutral space in society as far as Christians are concerned. That our steady abandonment of Christianity in our social and political spheres of life is one of the reasons we're seeing an increase in totalitarian politics today. So very, very important to take a look at that. All right, we have Damon, who is calling from Oregon. How are you, Damon? Pretty good, Father Mitch. Good to hear you. Good. As a matter of fact, the, the very judge I was, I didn't realize you're from Oregon, uh, the very <laughs> judge, uh, Hugo Black, who introduced yes. the concept of separation of church and state, the wall separation. You know, yep. he had a big influence on your state. Did you know that? No, I did not. 
Thomas. Yeah, he wrote the law back in 1921 or 22 that made Catholic schools illegal in your state. Well, I knew that back in the 20s, a lot in Portland, there was a lot of issues with uh, whites versus blacks and the KKK in Portland. Well, the, the KKK also uh, tried to attack Holy Rosary Catholic Church uh, wow. because they stayed open yes. despite that state law. And yeah, we, they later won the, we saw, the case. Um, we saw, um, oh, um, well, that's uh, all right. Don't worry about it. Yeah, we saw Rigorindi there a couple years ago when he came oh, okay. to visit Portland. But, um, he wasn't part of the uh, Ku Klux Klan, though. <laughs> no, no, no. He came for his um, show. Okay. So what my can we question, do for you? My question is on Ezekiel 38. Mm -hmm. Can you help explain a little bit? I know there's the old Bible names for the cities, um, like Russia, Turkey, and Iran. And can you explain a little bit about... Um, what we um, see there in that war and how that comes about. Um, my second part of wait, the question wait, who, is... Who said that these are old names for Russia? Um, the, the, old, the old Bible names um, and how that relates to the current as we how did, Russia... Right, Turkey, how did you Iran. come to that? Um, that's what I was those, sharing... Is the, the old Bible name for like No, Russia it's not. Oh, okay. See, you have to keep in mind, in the time when Ezekiel wrote, which was mm -hmm. the 500s uh, B.C., so he was writing from the 590s all the way into at least the 570s. As a matter of fact, um, the chapter 40 of Ezekiel begins mm -hmm. in um, uh, 573 yeah. um, because it was the, that was the Jubilee year. And he mentions, uh, gives the, the indication that it was the Jubilee. But there was no Russia. No. Didn't exist. No. And there were no the Russian one, people the yet. The, the, there were no Russian people. The, the, the Russian people didn't exist until practically the ninth or 10th centuries A.D. So a yes. good uh, 1,500 years later, the Russians came to exist. Now, it does mention Persia, which is today Iran, yes. but nobody really knows where um, Gog and Magog are. Meshech refers somewhere to Arabia or southern Iraq or southern Jordan. I'm not sure about some of these places because the okay. names have changed. But you have to be careful. And that, that's why I went into this a little bit. You have to be yeah. careful about identifying some of these terms with modern entities because they're not always the same. I know there are plenty of people who think that, for instance, Gog and Magog refer to Russia, but um, okay. that, that's, there were no such thing as Russians yet. No. Uh, the Russians, yeah. you know, the Russian people had 
we're, we're still, we're not going to migrate into Russia from Scandinavia and from Central Asia until about the 9th and 10th centuries. So that, mm -hmm. that, that would be an anachronism. So I, I don't mean to just cut you off right then and there, but I, I think that's important because I know yeah. a lot of people then say, well, Russia is making an alliance with Iran, which is old Persia. Therefore, mm -hmm. this war is happening now, right? Yeah, that's what I hear, hear yeah, about, right, and that's right. what I wonder about. Yeah, right. And, and the reason for it is Russia's uh, in big trouble, uh, and they need to buy missiles from uh, Iran. Their own missiles apparently are not adequate, or they don't have mm -hmm. enough. So um, they're going to the Iranians. Um, but, you know, this is something we have to be very cautious about, um, making mm -hmm. this as, you know, something being spoken of here when the Russians are not mentioned. We have to be very alert to these things. But for instance, when you look back to the 14th century AD, a number of people were connecting this prophecy with Tamerlane. Do you ever hear that name? No. Okay, good to look him up. Fascinating character, a very bad man. Uh, in fact, he, uh, his wars led to the killing of about 35 million people in the 14th century. That was the third most violent century in history because of him. Uh, he killed uh, tens of millions in India, in China, uh, and Iran. He attacked Iran. But people were thinking, oh, he is Gog or Magog. It, and they were wrong about that. Even though he was devastating, remember, 35 million people back 700 years ago, that's huge. That's a huge amount of death. And I had a big impact on history. In fact, Persia's population didn't recuperate for a couple hundred more years. But it was... Tamlin, it wasn't something about these end time battles. So we have to, people jump into it. They said the same thing. Uh, Stalin was uh, Magog and Hitler was Gog, uh, or the the beast and his image. And you know you have to say, wait, wait, be careful, be careful. Lots of folks make these connections and jump into it. We we have to deal with the best we can in our democratic system to help us be forces for peace and what is right. Um, if we have to fight a war to protect rights, we have to do so. But we have to be very careful because we make a number of mistakes on that. And we have to make sure we don't jump uh, into an apocalyptic interpretation without, you know, clear indication. All right. Well, Let's take a look. Oh, I have an email here in the monitor from Lisa. Dear Father Mitch, my husband has been battling stage four cancer. We pray scriptures every day. The scripture you are talking about today always leaves me wondering why Jesus doesn't heal him instantaneously like the leper. It leaves me struggling. Yeah, Lisa, I understand. 
you know, prayed that when my mother was dying of cancer. And yet, you know, this is something that we go through. Um, there may be various healings. Sometimes the healings are going to be on a spiritual level where a person comes to understand their life better and help to bring it to its conclusion. But again, it's always inevitable that every single one of us is going to die. That's inevitable. And it can't be prevented. It may not happen when we want, when we think we should. Uh, and that's not easy for any of us, especially with our loved ones. But we have to ask our Lord, all right, what are you doing? As much as we struggle, I got a couple other emails on the same thing, one from Mark in Manitoba, dealing with the same question. And struggle is not bad. We have to struggle with this and find, okay, Lord, what are you saying? I want to believe this, but what are you saying in this situation? And how do I find you in this suffering? And perhaps even inevitable death. And, you know, this, let that struggle lead you closer to God and not away from Him. Okay? Mother had to go through that in her final illness, too. But I have to get going, I'm afraid. God bless you all and keep you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And again, we ask that you keep us in between your gas bill, electric bill, and cable bill. And if you do, we'll be able to pay all of our bills too. Thank you and God bless. Mm -hmm.